all roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. And if they don't wake up, they get left out. I'm Kevin Powell, and you listen to Powerful with Jeff Couillard. And I realized, oh, okay, it's not a Colleen problem. Uh, this is a problem in business. Okay, now that I have your attention and you're wondering what's a problem in business, I'd like to introduce you to today's guest on Powerful. Her name is Colleen Henderson, and she is a journalist by trade, but quickly pivoted into sales and sales training and presentations and communication really is her shtick. And when you look at communication, uh, really communication is the stories, stories that we tell. And so she, I would consider a leading expert in storytelling, how to craft compelling stories in all areas of life. She actually helped me with my TEDx talk a few years ago, coached me through making it a more impactful and powerful message for my audience. And so she's got a pretty wide range of skills and a lot of expertise in different areas when it comes to storytelling and communication. And we had a wonderful conversation that spanned lots of different areas of life, certainly business, uh, but also life and politics and, and other places as well. So please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Colleen Henderson. Colleen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, Let's get, just give the audience a little bit of who you are and kind of how you got to this point in your career. You know, the Coles Notes version okay. of what it is you do and when, why, and maybe how little little nuggets of the story. Um, okay. Well, I'm president and creative director of Perfect Pitch Consulting Group, and we're in our seventh year of business. But how I got here, I was working for a national publishing company um, 17, 18 years ago, and I had to deliver a sales presentation to a group of 10 or 15 customers. It was a big deal for my company, so much so that a manager had flown out from Toronto to assist because we really wanted this deal. And about 15 minutes into the presentation, I heard this horrible sound coming from the back of the room. And when I turned away from my slide deck, I realized a gentleman at the back was asleep with his head hanging back, his mouth hanging open, and he was snoring out loud. So it, it sounds funny now, but in the moment, it really wasn't. And <laughs> I didn't get the deal. But I took some comfort because three months later, I was at a sales meeting um, down in the States. We had 350 maybe reps, sales reps in the room, in the ballroom. And we were told we had to attend the lunchtime address by our CEO. He flew in on a helicopter. It was a big deal. He went into the ballroom. And honestly, within 15, 20 minutes, we were struggling to stay awake. And when I looked around the ballroom, there were people, you know, their heads bouncing and I realized, oh, okay, it's not a Colleen problem. Uh, this is 
a problem in business that we don't communicate well. And I don't think I really had formed a story idea fully back then, but over the course of the next few years, I realized what I had learned at journalism school uh, had more to do with great communication at work than anything I was seeing modeled at work. Hmm. What brought you out of journalism? So that's your background Yeah, journalism. What? Oh my gosh. Well, there's a story. Uh, so I finished journalism school, honestly, afraid to fail. And I had, a, I had been invited to apply for a radio job up in the Northwest Territories. At the same time, I'd been doing this summer job uh, selling hotel memberships to businesses. And it turned out I was really good at it. And I was making a lot of money doing it. So when I weighed the two... Uh, the fear kicked in, and I decided to take a management position with that marketing company, and I basically turned my back on journalism, which uh, astounded everybody around me. In fact, it's interesting how people react because I had one friend in particular who was angry with my decision. <laughs> she found it really difficult to remain friends with me. Um, but you know that led me to meet my ex-husband. Uh, we traveled the world. We went to 53 countries over the course of our relationship and our marriage. And and then I did some travel writing. And I don't think that I would be where I am today had I not, you know, and it's fine to look back and say, you know, um, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't made that decision. But the the reality was I was afraid to fail. And that's that's why I did it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So that presentation from your CEO that was putting the room to sleep yeah. and that realization you had that this yeah. isn't a calling problem, this is a, a broader problem yeah. around communication. Can we dig into that a little bit? Like sure. what, what are some of the biggest blocks and barriers and maybe myths around business communication or just leadership communication in general? Yeah. And you know what, what gets in people's way? The biggest myth, I think, is that if we show them enough data and information, they're going to see the world the way we see it, and they're going to want to decide or take action with us. And I think that isn't just a CEO problem. That's a marketing department problem. That's a sales rep problem when they're standing in front of a customer. It's a manager problem when you have your employees sitting in front of you and you're you know, trying to uh, get them to do something in a certain way. I think that is at the crux of, of of the problem with business communication. And at that time, I was with this publishing company. I could I could I just started seeing it. You know, when you buy a red car and then you see red cars mm-hmm. on the highway. So I had put a guy to sleep. I watched my CEO almost put an entire room of three hundred and fifty people asleep. And all of a sudden, I started seeing examples of it. We had a monthly newsletter that went out uh, to internal, just to the uh, the internal team. But the articles were like, I mean, I come from journalism school, so I'm probably, you know, the worst critic. But at the same time, it was like information, 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 no story. My manager was sending out emails to his sales team, of which I was a member, and information, information. And some of it really vague, like everybody has a different interpretation. Mm-hmm. And, that's the, and that is the problem. The other myth is that, well, if I choose not to use story, almost like it's like a red Sharpie marker that I can put on the corner of my desk and I can say, oh, okay, well, I'm delivering a, you know, a fun keynote. Sure, I'll pick up the red marker and use it today. That's another myth that story isn't always in play. Mm -hmm. It is always in play. 
And so if you as the CEO are standing in front of the room of 350 people and you don't realize that everybody in the room is already using the red magic marker, they're making up a story about what you're saying. So wouldn't you rather give them one? Mm-hmm. Like, wouldn't you rather have one yeah. story walk out of that room instead of 350 yeah. different stories? Well, this is it. Yeah. And this is what happens. You know, We did a session years ago. Abigail ran it, actually. I didn't lead it, but she was up in Edmonton. And she's with a company that, you know, and I won't say their name. They're a household name. Like if I said, you'd know exactly who they are. And she had 200 people in the room, mostly from sales and marketing department. And she just grabbed you know, random five or six of them, had them stand up and she said, okay, tell me your corporate story. And all five or six had a very different version. Oh, that's not the story I tell. This is the one I tell. And that is a problem mm-hmm. because you're, you're losing your power to influence people. And, and I think there is, um, there's sometimes a, so one myth, data and information is going to make them see it, the world the way we want to. Second myth is we can just not use story. It's always in play. The third myth is that it's actually wrong to influence. Mm. I think that's a big problem that especially technical people struggle with. They think it's wrong to influence. It's manipulative. But we're always being influenced. It's I remember the red, red sharpie marker. It's always at play. Mm-hmm. So, and that that's an interesting one because it seems as though you know, story can be, and you're right, like story is everywhere. As soon as you put language to something, it it comes with a story. As soon as you watch a dog bark at a cat, you're telling, like, right? Yeah, sorry. (laughs) And we're we're kind of living in a day and age that's really interesting around story because, and we'll probably dig into it as as we go, but um, to be able to discern like a truthful story from a, like, Mm. obviously, like we're in a fake news kind of world. And so I think that there's a bit of a backlash against story in general around that Mm -hmm. because of, you know, some of the politics that we're experiencing Mm -hmm. around that. Um, How do you teach people to tell better stories? Like what are some of the practical things? Like maybe we'll, we'll dig into that conversation a little bit later, but Mm -hmm. let's, let's dig into what, um, what the average leader can do with a story, what stories can do for them, how they can, can like think about picking up that red Sharpie more often, Mm -hmm. um, or at least Mm -hmm. using it intentionally. intentionally. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that you have to, number one, put yourself in the audience's shoes and you have to ask yourself, what are they struggling with right now that I can help them with right now with the information I have? And um, too often we stop at the question, what information do I have? That's it. And we throw it at them. But if we can move beyond that question and say, okay, what information do I have? And now I'm going to put myself in their shoes, what do they need to hear to help them solve a problem that they have? And that is a tough question sometimes to answer. But if you don't ask it, you can't tell a story. You know, the other thing that the next step really is to talk about that problem, paint a little picture, hit them in the gut with it. And I, th- I think sometimes communicators, whether they're doing presentations or in whatever scenario, sales reps tell me this all the time, but they already know what their problem is. It, like, it seems silly to say it. And I'm like, yeah, but maybe they're 
dog died this morning and they're, you know, as you walk in the door, they are, you know, in turmoil internally because of what happened to them this morning. If you don't make them feel the pain of the problem, get them on the same page with you. They ultimately don't care about what you're talking about. Maybe a dog dying is too dramatic an example, but they might just have a tough meeting coming up after you leave and they're too distracted. So, there's like a whole physiological response that happens in the brain and it's a release of a, a blend of hormones that move us to take action. But it only happens if you tell your listener, I understand this is what you're dealing with and be specific about it and this is how the information I'm going to share with you is going to help you. That is a story. That's story structure. Well, and that's a display of empathy. Right? For sure. And, and, yeah. and that's the, the most potent piece of the trust equation, right? If we're going to build trust with somebody, we have to have a sense that they understand who we are and, yeah. and what we're dealing with. And I think that you're right. I think we gloss over that quickly. And I think the assumption that people know what their problem is, is actually like a pretty far leap because a lot of oh, people yeah. don't actually know what yeah. the, the, the real problem is. They've yeah. got symptoms of the problem. They've got mm-hmm. some pain points. They've mm-hmm. got, you know, a team that they haven't been able to motivate mm-hmm. and get engaged, but they may not necessarily tie that back to, well, here's the, the actual pain point. Yeah. Um, well, and I think it's cool to hear how somebody else sees your problem mm-hmm. because maybe you haven't looked at it in that particular way. Now I could disagree with it. I could say, actually, I'm not sure you've captured my problem, but at least we're having a conversation. And it's interesting you talk about empathy because I think, so if you're the storyteller and and you do that with me, yes, you are demonstrating empathy, but what, what the power of that story structure is that you're also sparking the hormone, the chemical that I need to feel empathy back. And that's this, um, this comes from a guy down in California, Paul Zach, who has done an enormous amount of research into the effect of oxytocin on decision-making and action, but also on building trust. And there's, you know, Harvard Business Review article that just came out last year about his research in oxytocin and trust. And story structure fires up oxytocin levels. And so the minute that we've got oxytocin levels higher, we're more likely to trust you. We're more likely to want to take action with you and, and more likely to feel empathy with you, the mm-hmm. storyteller. So the wonderful thing about it is it works in two ways. Now, that can be dangerous as well, you know, when story is used for nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what are the other pieces of the story structure? So we've got the kind of the, the problem yeah. definition or problem before solution problem is before the solution. biggest thing that people, that's, the advice that you that's got. like just <laughs> problem before solution. Like it, you just cannot, yeah, it, it works in the other way in business almost all the time. Here's our solution. Yeah. And Manager says, Jeff, I want you to do it this way. Well, that's the solution. So you need to paint a little picture for Jeff about what the problem is with how he's doing it right now. You know, and I think that conversation could go better in a number of ways. But problem, then solution. That's a big thing with story structure. Speaking of stories, I want to tell you a little story about a young lady. We'll call her Sarah. Uh, she was in grade 12 when her parents died in a car accident, and she had no family close by that could care for her. She was really committed to finishing high school, so she got a part-time job and rented a basement suite. 
And at our school, um, there's a teacher, and we'll call her Mrs. M, uh, who used to provide lunches for students who, who needed one. Uh, she would be considered, the, you know, the cool teacher. She had couches in her classroom, and students would just come and hang out at lunchtime and chat with her. Um, and this organization that I've been working with, Brown Bagging for Calgary's Kids, they worked with Mrs. M to put mini fridges throughout the school and fill them up with snacks so that students could grab, you know, a boiled egg or some apples or pepperoni sticks or some cheese um, to supplement and augment their their lunches and after sarah lost her parents in that car accident she started popping in to mrs m's class to grab lunch Uh, and certainly the food was important to her you know living on her own with a part-time job every dollar counted it was sometimes the only healthy meal she'd have uh, during the school day but shortly what became really evident was that the relationship sarah was developing with mrs m uh, was way more important than the food every time she came in to get some uh, mrs m checked in with her now, how'd you sleep last night? Did you work that thing out with your boss? Are you ready for your math test? Sometimes that co- connection with Mrs. M was the first conversation she had had with a caring adult that entire day. Uh, in talking with Sarah, it was clear that the food was important. She needed that nourishment and getting it for free was essential for her in the, in the conditions or the context she found herself in. But what was even more important um, was a relationship that she gained with Mrs. M because she was getting that food. And at Brown Bagging for Calgary's Kids, that's really the, the underlying philosophy is that, yes, food is essential. You know, we can't learn, we can't grow, we can't thrive if we don't have healthy, nutritious food. Um, but lunch can be a gateway to love for some kids, um, to connection, to becoming a meaningful, um, important member of a community. So if you're looking for a place to donate time or resources or money, or you want to check out the great work that they're doing, you can check it out at www.bb4ck.org, and I'll be sure to have links in the show notes that you can go and check it out. All right, back to Colleen. Yeah. Okay. And how how much detail does a story need, and how elaborate, like, because I think of like, there's lots of like yeah. one word stories out there or like yeah. one sentence stories. You look yeah. at branding, like yeah. brand is just a story. Nike, mm-hmm. just do it. Like that's just a story yeah. about, about who they are. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. and one of their, actually, if we're, you know, just because you mentioned Nike, one of their best stories was uh, the commercial that came out. Um, the Nike Courage series of commercials started, I think it was in the early 2000s. I want to say 2004. I might be wrong about that. But the the commercial opens with the phrase, everything you need is already inside. And that's powerful. And it's one sentence. And Nike transformed the way advertising was done with that commercial. And I show it in my courses. I always have to preamble it with, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong is in it and Oscar Pretorius is in it. You're going to see a couple of, na- you know, people who had a fall from grace. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that commercial and then the rest of the commercial is just scenes of athletes. And it starts with, it's really interesting. If you watch this commercial, it's got the killers in the background. It's a good ad. Um, it starts with athletes, uh, children, actually, learning how to walk and learning how to run. And then it moves into athletes. But they're not, like, nailing it. It, it shows um, one gymnast. Oh, it's, it's kind of awful, actually. She comes off the 
the bars and she lands awkwardly on her back and neck and or a track athlete tripping and falling across the track and so it's the problem Mm -hmm. and then the the end of the commercial is the victory getting the trophy but it's pushing through that challenge that entire commercial in 90 seconds with one sentence is a story from beginning to end and it i mean it had a massive impact on nike mm-hmm. yeah is that maybe another piece of advice is to simplify stories yeah. like Bring down it. to its essence or down to its core Concrete I think level that, like, yeah yeah a lot of storytellers probably struggle and i've sat through my fair share of keynotes or mm-hmm. you know, workshops where it's like this could be so much so shorter. much shorter <laughs> and so much more <laughs> yeah. impactful i think part you're... of that too is uh practicing out loud mm-hmm. i honestly think not enough presenters or even communicators generally like how much role playing do you get your sales reps to do do a ton you know, right, craft the stories, but all of our, our sessions, we, we have a full day of role playing because until you start doing this out loud, your brain knows. Your brain knows when you're rattling on. Mm-hmm. And if you can practice out loud, that gets reduced. That's a good piece of advice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know For you, anybody. You helped tune up my TEDx talk a few years ago <laughs> with that exact advice. Record yourself on camera oh, yeah. and then watch it. Oh, you know, yeah. That, and uh, it's painful. You know, yeah. I, I still do that. And it is painful. But even conversations, you know, I've role played with Abigail before having like difficult conversations. And it goes so much better than just going in cold and you've thought about what you want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's talk about stories and the the light side of stories and the dark side of stories, yeah. the the power of yeah. stories in in society, kind of more broadly, um, because we've just been through a federal election here yeah. in Canada, and we don't have to look too far to the south to see the what what's playing out yeah. from a from a storytelling perspective, really, when you, when you get down to it, um, yeah. politics has kind of become this place where we tell stories about who we are and yeah. who other people are. And, mm-hmm. um, it's leading to a lot of, you know, bad things, hopefully mm-hmm. you know, maybe some good things, but your take on storytelling in politics, that's a, a big topic. So, <laughs> yeah. so that would be more of the dark side of storytelling, but it's, uh, although not always, um, the light and the dark. Well, maybe I'll start with the light side because I, I thought of a story. This doesn't have to do with politics. However, it, it sort of does. Um, in 90 seconds, you can completely transform the way somebody sees the world. And in business, this is really important because we what might seem counterintuitive to some people out there is we don't always trust the people who are the friendliest. We trust the people who can challenge us or agitate our thinking, but do it in a way that maintains connection. And story does that. You know, so if you challenge somebody's values and beliefs, which happens a lot in politics, like our values mm-hmm. and beliefs are fired up during elections. Um, and if you challenge somebody's values and beliefs just with data, information, you know, in this very kind of acrimonious way, I mean, you're just going to get into a fight, right? But with a story, you can change the way somebody thinks. And I experienced this in one of my own sessions. So this is kind of like a, it's, it's, um, like being through the looking glass a little bit because I was teaching storytelling, uh, to the board of education and, uh, they have, um, 
they have been part of this big, giant controversy about math curriculum. It's mm-hmm. all over North America with this controversy and discussion about how kids should learn math. And, you know, I'm a parent, and I had at the time a young boy coming home with math homework that I didn't understand. I'd never seen it before. I'm like, what are they teaching you over there? <laughs> you know, and we'd have these sort of difficult moments anytime he brought math homework home, and I'm, you know, I'm muttering under my breath, I'm, I'm, you know, these kids aren't learning math. They need to memorize their times tables. Like, what are they teaching them? Anyway, so now I go into this session. And they want to work out some of their communication strategies around transportation and curriculum, and math was one of them. So I'm, uh, I assigned this group to come up with the math story. We'd just done you know, a full day of training, and now they were going to apply it. And one of the guys in the group got up, and he said, well, this is my story. He said, I'm a principal at uh, another school, but my kids attend another school. And he said one night they were having, my kid's school was having a town hall about math. And he said, I got to say, like, I work, I, I work for this board and I'm not crazy about the math curriculum. So I went to the town hall and I was really curious about what they had to say. And he said, I was sitting there and I'm listening, they're showing different strategies for long division. And he said, I said what I thought was under my breath, but obviously loud enough for the woman next to me to hear said, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And then she said, oh, this is exactly how I learned long division. And he turned and looked at her, and she was an East Indian woman. And he said, really? And she said, well, I grew up in India, and in our school, this is exactly the strategy that we used. And he said, I realized in that moment that I had been looking at math through this narrow lens of my teacher at my school in my small town in Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. Like, really? I'm going to assume that that, you know, that that guy knows how the only strategy for long division? And he said, so I'm t- chatting with this East Indian woman. And he said, after that night, I went home with fresh eyes and I looked at my kids and I just, and I asked my kids to explain it to me. And we've had a different experience with math. Well, Jeff... I listened to that story. So what did that take? Maybe 90 seconds. And my mind was changed in the course, the facilitator. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, and it's interesting. Your brain reacts as though it's happening to you. So that is the light side of it is that you can, you can really get people to change the way they see in, in the world. They see the world, but you'll do it in a way that maintains connection because I'm releasing oxytocin. We're having mm-hmm. an empathetic conversation. Now, the dark side of that, and certainly in the elections, is that whoever's telling the story is going to be able to influence voters and, and the public uh, in whatever way they want. And so... You know, you you end up in, in Canada, well, and I would even say when Trump was first elected, I, I, I knew Trump was going to win. I felt like he was going to win because Hillary did not have a story. She never had a story. And he did make America great. Mm-hmm. And he is a plain spoken, oftentimes offensive, but he resonates because he knows how to tell the story and he comes up with these catchphrases that get sticky in our brain and we repeat them and we repeat them crooked, what was hillary. It? crooked hillary yeah. yeah and this is just what johnny cochran did during the oj simpson file if it doesn't fit you must acquit about the glove mm-hmm. you know it's the same thing and so if you don't have a story 
um, yeah, you're going to lose out to the one who does. And I think Andrew, that was Andrew Shear's problem in the last election. And the problem, and so, you know, going back to oxytocin levels, you know, we've got a prime minister who has been exposed as unethical, completely unethical. And yet the guy who comes across as the least trustworthy is the guy without the story because he's not firing up our oxytocin levels at all. We have no empathy with him. You know, the other problem is just the news. Like you've got to, you know. Let's talk about that because we're not necessarily getting uh, like the, 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 how far a story has to travel yeah. and what it has to travel through these days yeah. and the filters and the algorithms and all of the things that are getting in the way of us accurately. Like, is this story accurate? Is this a true story or is this a fake story? Like it's getting really hard. Yeah. I think to tell. Well, and I think um, that partly is being driven by the fact that journalists, what I think anyway, especially in the United States um, have completely lost their objectivity, which is, you know, I went through four years of this in school. Like it's, it's very hard to achieve, but it's what, as a journalist, it's your responsibility to constantly strive for that objectivity. And as far as I'm concerned, based on what I've seen down in the States, they've lost it. They have no objectivity. So when I think one way that you can become skeptical when you hear a story is if it's too black and white. And the problem right now is, you know, with a lot of these CNN, Washington Post, whoever it is, Trump is evil, the Democrats are good, and that's it. And when it it really is that oversimplified, like it's important to make stories simple, but when they're overly simplified and you get into that black and white Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker scenario, then you've got to be skeptical. You have to be. Because there's no way that Trump is 100% through and through every core of his being an evil person. He isn't. It's too simple. Mm-hmm. You know, There's too much complexity with human beings. And yet we like to have these simple characters in our story. Mm-hmm. So I think as soon as you get into that black and white extreme position with storytelling, you have to be skeptical. Or you should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do we, what do we do? Like, what are some, when you look at the current landscape yeah. at, at high level political, yeah. you know, societal discourse and yeah. the stories that we're telling yeah. about good and bad and mm-hmm. right and wrong, um, what are some steps that the average person can take to, um, to filter stories? Like, I think the nuance piece is, is a yeah. great one. When you, yeah. when I see black and white or like yeah. all or nothing, I'm like, mm, that's probably like, well, it's absolutism, accurate. right? It's yeah. a cognitive distortion. Yeah. What are some of the other things that, well, I think one thing you can do is balance out your story intake. So I read a lot of the national post, but I kick myself and twice a week I read the globe and mail. We're not as polarized up here, although I think we're tending towards that. But so if I were in the States, I wouldn't just watch CNN. I'd watch Fox and, and there's a lot, there are a lot of journalists out there now who are kind of going renegade and they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're, they're starting up their smaller publications. And I think they're worth looking at and reading, even if you don't agree with it, like just assume that somewhere in the middle is probably the right story. But that's a hard one. This is where, you know, Daniel Kahneman's won a Nobel prize to encourage us to slow down our thinking and, 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 realize the mechanisms that are in place that move us to these, you know, 
blink responses, Malcolm Gladwell would call them, but Kahneman would say, okay, that's fine if you have a ton of experience and you know, you know what you're doing, but most of us should slow down our thinking and question that initial story that we come up with and be, be skeptics of ourselves. It's not easy though. Like it's easy to sit here and say that to you, but I'm not, I'm not always good at that. I have to remind myself, you know, sometimes I downright suck at it. (laughs) (laughs) What's aside from math and the math curriculum, what's something that you've changed your mind about recently or that stands out for you as something that you held, you held a story and that story got, got shaken or changed or shifted. Oh, Um, that's interesting. Well, a big one just, and I don't know if you say recently, but it's been over the span of, you know, probably uh, 12 years is my views on kids playing video games. You know, and it seems like a minor thing, but it actually isn't because it's what a lot of... It's a pretty hot topic. Yeah, what a lot. And I think even the public opinion has swayed a little bit. So my son, my oldest son, who's 18 right now, he started playing video games later in life because we didn't allow it. And it was me who was driving that. My ex to some degree, but it was I was terrified of them. I just didn't want him playing video games. And I remember he used to go to a neighbor kid's house when he was four. And that kid had access Sounds to... Sounds like my upbringing. Club uh, Penguin. <laughs> he had access to Club Penguin. Who's Peng- got the N64? Yeah. <laughs> That's where we're going. He had access to Club Penguin. And I thought Club Penguin was evil. Like, I just didn't want Sean playing video games. Why well, not? What was your... What was, was the, what my, was the problem? What water, was the story uh, behind not? That he would, well, I would read about like lower empathy levels, um, that it manipulates their brains in the wrong way and that they become violent. You know, if they play with guns, they'll be, I think guns are um, very closely linked to this, mm. but you know, that it would have all these negative impacts on his abilities and, and particularly his ability to feel compassion and empathy. And, uh, I was worried about that. Well, um, many years later, so finally, you know, you can only fight that battle for so long and we, allowed him video games. The first year that I got involved with TEDx, I actually applied to speak. And when I was filling out the application, now Sean's 11 years old, uh, he looked over my shoulder and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, uh, we're having a TEDx cam war. I'm going to apply to speak at it. And he's like, oh, I think I'll apply. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Good for you. So, uh, they rejected me and they took Sean. And uh, Sean did a six and a half minute talk on why kids need video games. And Abigail and I coached him on the story structure, but he did the whole talk himself. And he, he talked about three things. Number one, the um, creative aspect of like he showed uh, one of the games that he loved, Minecraft, where this you know, creative energy is at work to build these worlds that live in your imagination. This being able to be strategic with a team, make decisions really quickly, uh, and also social network um, that you wouldn't think, you know, and he said in his talk, you think of the gamer as the loner in the basement, and we're not. And now, and, and I think just the power of that talk too. Like, again, I'd already given in to video games, but working with him on that Ted talk, I thought, 
I might be looking at this the wrong way. And now if I look at where my kids are at, you know, Sean is um, studying acting for the theater at Concordia University in Montreal. He is a dungeon master in two Dungeons and Dragons groups. He joins improv clubs with, you know, people of all ages. He's a cool kid who's got his own thing going on. He knows his own mind. He's got a good social network. My youngest now, 11, he's one of the most empathetic, almost to a fault, kids, <laughs> kids I know. Yeah, I think the story for me has been maybe over time, but I have changed my mind. And a lot of it had to do with that TED Talk. You know, mm-hmm. I just thought, wow, I haven't really looked at it that way. So... Yeah, it's one of those those questions that, you know, what do I actually know about this thing yeah. from the other person's perspective, right? It's yeah. that first step that you talk about when telling yeah. a story or trying to, yeah. like, what do we actually understand about this? Because mm-hmm. we get stuck in our in our biases and our in our blind spots. Yeah, um, yeah. What are some of the, what are some of the cognitive biases that, that get in the way of of good storytelling or, or receiving stories? Yeah. You know, there's, there's, you know. I don't know how many cognitive biases. There's like 200 of them oh, probably. Lots of ways in yeah. which our brain will try and make sense of the world based on our past experiences and influences the present moment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What, what can we do around, I mean, slowing down, you know, Kahneman's work around, yeah. you know, we actually just need to be able to slow down. I think that that's symptomatic. Generally speaking in life, we could all do well to slow down yeah. enough to process, but are there specific things that get in the way of um, receiving, a story? receiving a story? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Okay, so I'll start by saying I'm not an expert on cognitive biases. I'm not asking. I I think the (laughs) biggest one is confirmation bias that we gravitate. Again, this is why I'll only watch CNN or I'll Mm. only read the Globe and Mail or I'll only hang out with these friends who agree with everything I say. I'll block everybody on Twitter that I don't agree with. Oh, yeah. So I get into a little bubble of confirmation bias. Unfriend on Facebook because, you know what, you you like Stephen Harper, so out you go. You know, and I think that what we do is we insulate ourselves. you like Stephen Harper? I have a crush on him. You have a crush on Stephen Harper. Oh, my God, you might hear that. I'm sorry. I know you're married (laughs) to Stephen Harper, but I think you were wonderful. Anyway. um, (laughs) Confirmation bias. In many ways. So confirmation bias. So what, what we do is we insulate ourselves from the potential to hear the stories that will change the way we see the world. And I have to say, like, it's quite a wonderful thing to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't see the world the way you do. Mm-hmm. Like it's quite wonderful. And it's certainly what I learned when I was traveling all those years ago, you know, just being exposed to different stories. But I think that bias gets in the way and we insulate ourselves. And then we get into this group think where all of a sudden we're part of a tribe of, in, and we adopt whatever the group thinks just because we're part of that tribe. And I, I just... And I, I've, I've seen that in myself. And so I think that's a danger mm-hmm. because I think we're getting into a period of time right now. My big fear is that we're getting into a period of time where it's not okay to debate and it's not okay to disagree and it's not okay to feel that icky feeling of being offended at times. Mm-hmm. I, I, it, that is okay. It's exactly what you want to make this world a better place. It's the only way we've gotten to where we are. So to share those, you know, those different stories, to hear a story that you don't want to hear, but you're going to listen to it anyway. That is what's made this 
society the way it is today. And and we are progressing. Mm -hmm. Oh, and the other dark side of storytelling is the doomsday story. Mm. The world is ending story. That's a, that's been around since the Mayans, even before, you know, just please discount that. Like anytime somebody tells you like, you know, with climate change, well, we've got 12 years like, come on, really? Like, this goes way back, you know, guys with sandwich boards walking around New York City, the world, you know, the end is nigh. Mm-hmm. This is an old story. So I, I think they're just, anyway, I, I, don't, I think I'm going on a tangent now, but... No, that's okay, because that, that's what this podcast is for, yeah. is to have nuanced conversations about, right. about things that we sometimes don't think about, yeah. right? And I think story is one of those. And I think, just to rewind a little bit, that tribal aspect of, of yeah. storytelling. Can I tell, I, I, yeah. you know what? I, I just, I'm, I'm thinking about a really important bias, but it's not what prevents us from receiving a story. It's why you always want to use story with intention. And it's the ambiguity bias. If something seems like a sure thing and another thing seems ambiguous, we're going to go with the sure thing. Ambiguity causes us to feel fear. It raises our cortisol levels. It's it's not a good thing. We don't like it. And so we will resist the unknown. We will refuse the unknown. And story helps to make the unknown concrete in our imaginations. And there's a wonderful quote by Noel Tishy who wrote The Leadership Edge. And uh, I'm not going to get it totally right, but he says the best way to get human beings to venture into unknown terrain is to take them there first in their imaginations so that it becomes familiar and desirable. And so if you want to battle the ambiguity bias and that one is at play every single day, then please learn how to use storytelling Mm -hmm. because people will fear the unknown. Yeah, we used to... Or I often do a lot of what's called appreciative inquiry with groups, which is let's imagine a future state a year from now, two years Mm -hmm. from now, three years from now. Mm -hmm. And this is the ideal future state Mm -hmm. to to get rid of some of that ambiguity, Mm -hmm. get them to, like you say, go there first in their minds. And then we back up, okay, what do we need to do between now and then to make that the reality instead of this other thing or to have a little bit of certainty in an inherently ambiguous world, right? Like lots of things can happen and lots of things will happen. And and that, that unknown future that you've just spent all that time imagining, Imagining, well, I guess it could change. Like, we don't know, right? But we just need that concrete vision to step towards and uh, to motivate some action. Right? Yeah. To get people. Yeah. Because yeah. the wonderful thing about the way the brain works is if I look at a tree, my brain is working in one way. But if I close my eyes and imagine a tree, it's working in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. I don't really know the, di- I know the difference, but my brain doesn't know the difference between what's imaginary and what's real. It's operating at both the same function. So that's a really cool power that we have to imagine. And if we're not using that in business, oh, just... Oh, Seems I, like a lost I, opportunity. To- oh my God, it's massive, massive lost opportunity for engineers, for marketing people, for salespeople. I think our scientists especially, like this is my own you know, passion is to turn scientists into better storytellers mm-hmm. because... They're going to tell the good stories the, the, that uh, are going to help us. And I fear that a lot of them aren't. Yeah. And I think when you think, when I think about objectivity, mm-hmm. because that's the problem with stories, right? Is that they can yeah. lose their objectivity. But that's if you right. have a story that has some objectivity oh, built if into it, driven by the right? if it's driven by method. the data, right? Oh, yeah. And it uses that yeah. to reinforce the core, but yeah. like those things I think are really important. Yeah. Um, I think so too. Yeah. 
backtracking to mm. tribal mm. and because those stories about identity yeah like who we are as people they run pretty deep um and i think that that's what we're starting to see in politics as well as mm-hmm. i'm a conservative therefore i always vote conservative and i always i think this thing or i'm republican or i'm democrat like people have really internalized the story and identity yeah based on affiliation yeah with with tribes and then everything becomes a threat to yeah. that and yeah. so how do you how do you think about because these values stories really is what they are. Right. Right. And you said, you know, in, in during polit- political seasons, those will start to flare up, right. They and everything do. becomes a values conversation. Yeah. So how can we have those conversations better? Because they don't seem to be going that well <laughs> from, from the outside. Like it seems like polarization continues to, yeah. to creep into society in lots of different ways. Um, and you know, aside, aside from like the Facebook bubbles and Twitter bubbles and reading yeah. more, but if you're, f- trying to convey a values-based story to somebody. Yeah. What are some of the, some tips or some things that you should be thinking about? Are well, they different than no, other stories? I, or the I, same? I think you start from the same place. What yeah. does my audience need to hear to help them solve this problem that they're having right now? What if they yeah. don't see the, a problem. Yeah. That, well, they're not going to all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone back in 2007, everybody loved their BlackBerry. I loved my BlackBerry. I didn't know the keyboard was a problem until Steve Jobs stood on stage and told me it was. And he made a real show of it. You know, he scrunched up his face and he, you know, cr- crooked up his fingers and, and showed you just how awful that keyboard was. Um, there's an interesting situation in Toronto right now. So, um, uh, why am I not rem- Megan Murphy? She was speaking at uh, uh, Toronto yeah. Public Library, and there were calls to cancel her talk because uh, it's hate. Spe- you know, qu- I'm, I'm putting quotes around this hate speech. Which, if you listen to Megan Murphy, this is not hate speech. She's a feminist speaker, and she has a point of view. And um, anyway, Toronto Public Library uh, thankfully refused to cancel her talk, but there were protests outside, and the head of the library has made some statements about freedom of expression and freedom of speech and how the library needs to stand up for freedom of speech. Well, the problem with that message is that you're not going to change anybody who's standing outside with the placard saying stop hate speech because the head of the Toronto Public Library hasn't put herself in their shoes yet. Mm -hmm. And that's tricky. I get it. It is tricky. But if she could have stood in front of that crowd and come up with a value story that demonstrates that, you know what, we're on the same page. Mm -hmm. It is about free speech. It is about respectful speech. Like, I don't know how the story would go. This is where I work with clients to craft it. But Mm -hmm. the, the power of a value story is that you actually demonstrate we're not as divided as you might think. But the statements that I've read, and I I can't say that I know everything that she said, so apologies if I'm oversimplifying, but what I've read in the paper, I thought, you asked, you're you're still taking a Toronto Public Library perspective on this. The Mm -hmm. central character of what you're saying is Toronto Public Library. And until you get out of there and put yourself in their shoes, you're not going to tell a story that is going to bridge that divide. And that's how value stories bring us together. Because if you can spark, again, their oxytocin levels, even a little bit, and and it might take a while, but that's what you can do is start to bridge that divide. And I think to help, help us have these conversations, I do think the people with the authority to create spaces to have them need to start standing up 
for freedom of expression, number one, but they need to do it in a way that bridges the divide and maintains the connection. And it's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but I think I know story is is the way you do it. Use it with intention. Yeah, and the impulse, I think, for leaders or for those with authority. So mm-hmm. if, if we use the public library in Toronto yeah. as an example, yeah. you've got a bunch of protesters on the front steps. Yeah. You're not feeling safe. Oh, God. Right? No. You're not feeling secure. No. And so naturally, you become the main character. And yeah. the story is how do we keep ourselves safe? And so we need to justify our actions and we yeah. need to like get defensive right. in, in a lot of ways. And I think that maybe that is what's contributing most mm-hmm. it to um, to the polarization that we're experiencing yeah. is that entrenchment and that defensiveness that yeah. comes with fear, right? Kind of all roads lead to fear at yeah. the end of the day and our, and our susceptibility yeah. to lots of different types of fear. Well, and it's, it's hard. Like I'm, you know, I'm using this as an example. Um, and I think it's admirable that Toronto Public Library went ahead with the talk. They did absolutely the right thing. I think that there is um, a complete disregard for freedom of expression, on particularly on the left right now, which is shocking because they are supposed to have liberal values. And I think that's a conversation, and I, I don't even know how we start to have it, but that's a conversation that needs to be had about what it means to be a liberal because mm-hmm. this isn't it. You know, firing off an air horn every time somebody tries to speak is not it. That's fascism in my opinion. And I just, I think that, I don't know, I'm going into maybe territory I'm not an expert on either. We don't have to be experts on it because we're people who are affected by it though, right? Like it's, it's, it's a real concern. It really worries me. And it's been creeping, creeping, creeping now for years and it's getting pretty bad. I just, anyway. I think one of the things that I think about when it comes to safety, because safety is the fundamental Mm. condition, like we have to maintain Mm -hmm. safety in relationship. Because mm-hmm. as soon as I feel unsafe, I'm going to do things to protect myself. You're going to do the same. Mm-hmm. That's going to create these walls and mm-hmm. we will not be open to a new story, right? Mm-hmm. We just won't be open to a different perspective. Um, and it's gotten to this point where, you know, we'll say, I feel, I feel unsafe. Yeah. And that's not actually a feeling, right? Like yeah. fear is the feeling. Right. But right. We, we're trying to create these emotionally safe spaces. It's like, well, emotions aren't unsafe. Yeah. Right. You're yeah. allowed to feel like, yeah. and you should feel fear and you should feel joy and you should feel all these things. And we shouldn't yeah, try and should, insulate people from yeah. that uncomfortableness. And you feel disgust and contempt and, you know, all these feelings that we say we should like, God, God forbid, you know, we should have these negative feelings anyway. Yeah, but I agree with you. Here, and I think that that's maybe yeah. where that the left has gotten itself into this mess yeah. that it's currently in is it's like being uncomfortable is not a bad thing. And it's not something that we should insulate our children from. Right. But they think it is. Yeah. Well, some extreme positions. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's a really hard conversation um, because there are things, there are conditions that I don't experience a sense of unsafeness, but I'm a white male Mm -hmm. that has tons of power, right? Mm -hmm. I can can walk Mm -hmm. into most places Mm -hmm. in society and feel safe, Mm -hmm. right? There are not, there are lots of marginalized and oppressed people in our society that don't have that luxury. Yeah. And so how do we balance, like, how do we find that, um, creating safe space for everybody, but also not allowing us to insulate ourselves from uncomfortable conversations, right? right? That's a, that's a really tricky thing and probably beyond the scope of, I don't have all the answers, (laughs) man. Maybe that's the the secret of meaning of life or something. I don't know. That's a bit tricky. I think if businesses 
take on some of this though. And, and I mean, from a grow your business and, and make your business great perspective, you can do, it's one of the critical pieces I think is to make sure that everybody in your organization understands how to use what's already at play, which is storytelling Mm -hmm. and how to use it well. And I think that if, you know, that just, that trickles out, right? Like we don't only exist at work. And so, um, Maybe that's the secret. You know, we start at a corporate level and teach people the skill. In my courses, anyway, it, it's very common for people to say to me, like, this is kind of life changing, right? Because, and I'm sure with any of the courses that we teach are like that, because anything we teach trickles out into our personal lives. So maybe if we could do more of that. Because the company is a play for it, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know how to bridge the divide, but I know that's, that is the power of storytelling. I think that we can generate a lot more empathy in the world if we just share our stories. And one of the biggest, um, you asked me earlier about structure. So it is problem before solution. But I think where uh, storytellers are shy to go a lot of the times is, and but it's so important to good storytelling is to be vulnerable. And there are moments in conversation, and I I just experienced this this week, where I was telling uh, the person I was having lunch with a story, and a negative reaction I had to something I'd seen on LinkedIn, and it was a reaction that I didn't think was really good, but I had a negative reaction to it. And in that moment when I'm telling that story, what I realized is I'm inviting my listener to get down in the muck with me. Mm-hmm. To like I'm I'm asking for empathy in return, right? Like that's what I'm kind of looking for. And it was interesting to me because this person didn't do that. Um he stayed above me, kind of mm-hmm. lorded over me and started to lecture me on my reaction. And I realized Oh, that's interesting because this is disconnect. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how many times we do that at work where one person is willing to be vulnerable. And that is an invitation. It's an invitation to share a story and get down in the muck together. And I think often we're not aware because leaving that lunch, I realized I've done that before. Hmm. I've done it with Abigail before. I've done it with my kids before where they're just telling me like a raw story and I'm like, oh, I've got all the answers. Let (laughs) me just lecture you on that, you know, and that's disconnect. So you also need vulnerability to be truly storytelling. Hmm. Yeah. And that's probably when you get right down to it is probably one of the biggest blocks for most leaders is a sense of responsibility and Mm. the weight of that responsibility Mm. and the need to be, you know, if not perfect, right. But that fear of failure that you identified right off the top of the podcast around journalism versus doing something you knew you were good at. Yeah. Right. That's the, I think every leader struggles with that. Yeah. Right. That being vulnerable. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think as a facilitator, when I'm in the room, I just had an experience last year where one of the participants basically challenged the entire thrust of my course, like (laughs) the the basic foundation philosophy of the, why we were there in the room. Uh, He took issue with it and he did it in a way that I think was a bit um, maybe too direct, you know, I felt, I felt for everybody else in the room a bit, but if I'm going to be honest, I really felt for myself. I'm like, Oh, he's challenging me. 
That He's doesn't too, feel safe, does it? That doesn't feel safe. <laughs> I'm up here in front of these 25 people trying to convince them there's a reason your company hired me. And this guy is just tearing me to pieces, you know, with his four minute story. And I got defensive. You know, so going, you know, how does the head of the Toronto Public Library go out there and face all those people? How does anybody, any leader stand up, you know, and face a, a group of, I can only imagine how things are going in downtown Calgary right now, standing up in front of your teams and having to announce layoffs and everybody's angry and ambiguity bias is kicking in. You know, it's not easy. It's not easy to to get out of self protection mode. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so much to talk about. I know what? it just leads down so many avenues, <laughs> so many rabbit you know? holes come mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. this conversation about story because it is so intricately connected to well power, which is you know this podcast about oh, power, yeah. but the power yeah. of a good story. Yeah, and we can see it. You know, mm-hmm. to look far to see. You know, even in our own lives, the stories that we carry with us are the stories that have impacted us. But more yeah. broadly, in society and in our organizations, kind of that. Yeah, the thread of story. That and just I runs think through. we fear that we give up power when we tell our stories. Hmm. I think that's the uh, vulnerability of storytelling. Oh, I think so. I think there's a lot of fear in, in that if I share my story with you in a in a real way, then I give up something. And I think it's exactly the opposite. I think you gain the right kind of power when you are willing to get down in the muck with people and be authentic and tell your stories. But I don't think we look at it that way all the time. Yeah. So how do we, how do we shift in that direction? What are some practical strategies that you teach people or that you work with people on to maybe even find their story? Like how do people discover their story? Because it's not, it's not something maybe that we're all aware of that this has been a a thread or a driving force in our lives, you know, obvious in hindsight, but when we're in the middle of it, it's like, Oh, I didn't realize that that's my story. So how do you help people find their story? Well, I get them talking. So the first step is just have a crack at it. It. Here's the structure. Here's you know. Here's how long it should be. Have a go, and they spend some time writing. They always write in long form sentences, you know. And then and then I say to them, okay, so now tell me your story. They start reading, which is hilarious to all of us because well, it's your story. It's about you, so uh, you don't need to read it. Get them to turn the the page over. But it's interesting because, and this is what I find I love about story is that your brain is the natural storyteller. It's already at play, and what always happens. I haven't been stumped yet. So that's a challenge to listeners. If you want to try to stump me, call me. But uh, I haven't been stumped yet. There's always a theme that will run through. It's usually in a long, rambling, not tight story yet because they've only started by writing it out and trying to say it once. But I hear it and I say it back to them. And they're like, oh, that's it. you know. And, and, then, and then I'll get them off the notes. Just, just tell me. You know, and... And they do get there. You know, the other piece often that's missing is that true vulnerability. So in anybody's personal story, they have to talk about a challenge or a problem that they overcame. And a lot of times people will make the challenge or problem not about them. Mm -hmm. It's about something that happened to them. Mm -hmm. And that is resisting being vulnerable. And I will push people to, no, let's talk about that in a different way. But a lot of people don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. And there, I've had people resist that altogether. And I just think, okay, they're not ready yet. But um, that's one of the hardest ones to tell is 
the story of yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The deeply personal identity, right? It goes back to who am I? Yeah. Right. Interesting. Where can people, what would you recommend people do if they're interested in kind of storytelling? Are there books, resources, podcasts, things that you would recommend people start with? I'll obviously have have notes and links to your guys' stuff, Perfect Pitch. People can check out that, but is there a book that's been influential or a podcast you like to listen to that helps I'm sure there's lots. So yeah. <laughs> give us a give us a few. Well, one of the my favorite podcast is This American Life. I just listened to the Hong Kong episode that you said. Oh what fantastic storytelling. Oh my Amazing. gosh. Like even the fact that Ira went to a protest in Hong Kong is so impressive. Ira Glass is, has, you know, created a show that is quintessential storytelling. It's fantastic journalism one of the more balanced approaches to journalism that I've heard. And certainly the Hong Kong episode is a really good example of that. Um, But what I find wonderful about this American life, and I think if you listen to it in a reflective way, it's like you can get the gist of the story or the moral of the story or hear the values of the people in the story because of the story. Nobody has to stand there and say, you're about to hear, I'm about to tell you a story about a guy who values respect and integrity. And, you know, this is how we talk at work, but it's just the, it comes out in the storytelling. Um, the one of the other big influential books is The Story Wars by Jonah Sachs. It is written primarily, I think, for a marketing audience, um, but there are so many uh, essentials to what makes a great story in The Story Wars. And I think you can take a lot away from it. And then the book that changed my life, but it's not for everybody, is The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. And um, it's uh, just you know, demonstrates the universal human condition of storytelling and the, the, the one story that we tell over and over again. Um, I'm trying to think of some other quick, oh, Nancy Duarte is like, you know, if I met her, I probably act like I was meeting you too for the first time. Like it, she's, she's wonderful. And if you're uh, working with data or doing primarily business uh, presentations, then Nancy Duarte's books resonate as one that I would highly recommend. Um, yeah, I think that's it for a few places. Awesome. To go. No, that's, that's mm-hmm. great. That's, that's super helpful. I always like to have something, some sort of takeaway, some sort of action yeah. people can take after, after listening. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else? I mean, what, what are you up to these days? That's, that's interesting that people can expect coming oh, okay. from, from perfect pitch <laughs> from or from perfect Colleen. Pitch. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, um, we've just built our vision storytelling course that we've been running for a year and I've done a couple of keynote talks based on that. And again, that's having, a really big impact on the audiences that I work with. Um, And so I want to figure out, I'm talking to another client about using that specifically in change management. This particular company is going through a massive transformation after an acquisition, and we're going to tailor that course for change management. So I'm excited about that because that takes us into maybe an area of business that we haven't gone into yet, but I'm excited about that. I'm working on a book uh, based on that vision storytelling model, the story compass. And um, 
talking to publishers now, so fingers awesome. crossed you'll be <laughs> you'll be seeing. I'll be that. interviewing you again in six soon, months yeah. to a year when. Oh, the book and I'll is... bring books with me, Jeff, for Perfect. Christmas gifts. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know. That's that's what we're working on, and. Um, Awesome. Well, mm. I very much appreciate you taking mm. the time out of your day to sit down and yeah, chat all things fun. story. It was yeah. very fun. And yeah, we will definitely fun. do it again okay. when your book is ready to go. We can dig into, into that. Okay. So yeah, that thank sounds you so great. much. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast with Colleen Henderson. And if you want to check out the resources, learn more about her, check out Perfect Pitch Consulting Group. Uh, all the links are in the show notes at www.jeffcoulard.com. And this month we're focusing on gratitude around here. And so if you're interested in the Ultimate Guide to Gratitude, which is a PDF that we put together, it's about, I don't know, a dozen pages with a bunch of resources, videos, and podcasts, and books, and articles, and some exercises to help you foster a gratitude practice in your own life, you can get your hands on that really easily by texting the word POWERFUL to one 969 5300. Again, that's the word powerful to 1-855-969-5300. Thanks so much, and we will talk to you soon.